The talk tonight is about decolonizing our minds from greed, hatred, and delusion. Um, how's that for sound? <laughs> All right. A little. You want to? Is it better? Or do you want it a little higher? Higher? A little higher? Oh. Well. <clears throat> <laughs> if you really can't hear, I would hope that you can move up closer. There's plenty of room. Thanks. I wanted to share um, my experiences with two Seyadals in Burma this year uh, that live up in the Sagain Hills. Uh, behind the monastery that I've been teaching at for um, off and on for, I think, 10 years now in Burma. And these two seyadas don't have a big scene around them. In fact, uh, their monasteries are fairly invisible and unknown. And I wanted to share with you what inspires me. No? Two? Let's... Let's just leave it the way it is, and how's that? Okay. Thank you. What what I find inspiring um, upon entering these two Sayadaw's monasteries is a feeling of kind of walking into this feeling of ambrosia. And it's like you don't even have to meet these sadhus. It's like the whole place just has this atmosphere of renunciation, mindfulness, and incredible purity. Uh, so the one sadhu we've nicknamed the angel sadhu, and he's in his 40s. Um, and when I first met him, the Metadana project that we've done a lot of um, work with the hospital and the village and the schools. Some, one of our projects is to do some restoration of beautiful old pagodas or buildings. And his monastery has actually got this beautiful old architecture and teak wood. When you walk into his place, it's like everything is in this process of decay. So he doesn't replace anything until it's almost useless. You know, it's like he waits until that moment when it's about to just completely fall apart, and he refuses to replace it until that point in time. And this place is exquisite. It's like walking through the most exquisite Japanese tea garden. Everything has its place. It's like the way the brooms are hung. Or there'll be a ceramic bowl that is cracked and would have been thrown away 40 years ago in our culture. And it's like there's just, you just look everywhere and the boards on the buildings where the young little monklets stay, you know, like they have holes in them and you can see into the rooms. And it's just like not time to replace those boards yet. So I asked him the first year I was there if he had any interest in us helping him (laughs) restore a building. And and he told me a story of the uh, Sayadaw that was there before him. And he said that whenever anybody came around, basically, to offer something like that or support support the place, the Sayadaw would go into the cave and slam the door. You know, it's just it's a it's a it's kind of hard, I think, for us to imagine. But it's just a sense of really only doing what's necessary and having our environment really reflect that, and just receiving just enough to keep themselves alive, just in, just receiving just enough robes to keep themselves close, just receiving just enough food to be healthy. It's really, really pure, really inspiring for me. And every year when I come to the States, just before I leave, I ask him, do you need anything from America? 
and he just gets this big happy look in his eyes and it's like, I don't need anything. <laughs> and it's, he's so happy. It's just so, so inspiring to me. And this year, one of um, the people who had managed this retreat before is doing, um, is helping Ajahn Amaran do a pilgrimage in India to all the great Buddhist uh, spots. And he took time off from his time with Ajahn Amaran to come to the retreat. So he was describing to the Seda what it, you know, what it's been like to be in these incredibly sacred sites for a Buddhist. Uh, and he was so interested. It was like he was so present, listening to what Varanasi is like, or you know, what Guy is like. And he could just see he was so happy for this person. And then we kind of noticed how interested he was, and we sort of whispered back and forth, because there's this feeling that you want to give him something, because he's given us so much, but he just, you can't give him anything. So we were sort of looking at each other and going, well, maybe, maybe we could send him to India. You know, great. And so we sort, of refer, you know, we sort of implied that if he wanted to go, we would help raise money for him. And he looked at us like totally astounded, like how could we think that he'd want to go anywhere? You know, it's just like, he just like, he looked at us like, oh, I would never have a thought like that. <laughs> it's like, it's like I, you know, he's so content. And he's really trying to live that life of seclusion, of protection, renunciation. And one can see, like, just the exquisite, again, aroma or ambrosia of purity that comes from some being that really just perfects that level of solitude and quiet and peace. And then this other sayadaw that um, I've been very inspired by is 41 years older. He's 94. And again, you walk into his place and it's, it's just like there's nothing going on. There's just no, absolutely no scene. And whenever I go in there this year, I think that he was kind of playing fun little games with me because whenever we would walk in, he'd be sweeping. And he had this thing with me about how sweeping can get you to the heaven realms. If you, you, know, if you, if you really, really you know, sweep well, you can get to the heaven realms. And then he'll look at me and say, it's easy to get to the heaven realms. It's really hard to get to Nibbana. Um, and, and he just... He just was really trying to get across that every single thing we do is important. You know, that sweeping is just as important as being with your anchor of the breath, or sweeping is just as important as chopping a vegetable or walking. Or You know, it's just like you get that sense from him of, again, a perfection of really valuing each moment that there's not a hierarchy of one moment being different than the other in terms of um, the validity of paying attention to it. And sweeping isn't something I always value over um, other things. It's like something that I don't do as well as other things. And I think he was trying to show me something by every single time I showed up there, he was sweeping. It was just kind of like, he'd give me this look in his eyes like, did you sweep your place today? He didn't say it. <laughs> it was more just like, I'm like, mm, equal valuing, <laughs> equally valuing what I do, one thing over another. It was so sweet, so much fun, so simple, no judgment. Last year, when some family that visited him uh, from, from right around here uh, came to visit him, uh, the father of the family had had a pretty strong bout of two different kinds of lymphoma in, his, in the stomach. And, I, you know, it's like I don't think it's so easy to have um, a complete free feeling about that kind of cancer what, when you're dealing with that or, you know, to kind of have a always an upbeat view of it. So when we went in to see him, 
he described to the Sayada what was going on with his health. And this guy just started laughing. I mean, just roaring with laughter. And he's like, ah, ha, 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 ha. People think they're not going to die. Isn't that funny? <laughs> and it was just like so great. It was just like it completely shifted that attitude of like, oh, no, I'm dealing with cancer too. Isn't it hilarious how humans don't think they're going to die? Like, can you believe it? Isn't that great? Isn't that the funniest thing you've ever heard? You know, and it, again, it was just kind of like that feeling. Everything that this Sayadaw says is kind of like that. It's like, ah, ha, 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 ha. You know, just whatever he's talking about, there's that holding it with such a beautiful attitude from that freedom of seeing clearly. His mind is clearly not colonized by greed, hatred, and delusion. He's a free being. And when I came this time, I just asked him, well, what, what do you think it would help the yogis to hear? And he said, oh, just tell all yogis to just remember to have the intention to be happy and peaceful. And whatever they're doing in their practice, just say, just have the intention to be happy and peaceful. Ha, 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 ha. And it's just, he's just so encouraging. You know, what I, what I admire about him the most is his just real reassurance and encouragement, you know, that we can do this, that we can get fully free, you know, that just keep trying, keep trying with a lot of humor. This is a quotation from <clears throat> Suzuki Roshi, and the title of this chapter is What is Meditation? Meditation opens the mind to the greatest mystery that takes place daily and hourly. It widens the heart so that it may feel the eternity of time and infinity of space in every throb. It gives us a life within the world as if we are moving about in paradise. And all these spiritual deeds take place without any refuge into a doctrine, but by the simple and direct holding fast to the truth which dwells in our innermost beings. It's so, it's so light and positive, that sense of what is it doing, meditation? It's opening our heart to the greatest mystery that takes place every moment. You know, it widens the heart so it can feel the eternity of time, infinity of space in every heartbeat. It gives us a life within the world as if we were moving about in paradise. And all of this happens without taking refuge in a specific intellectual doctrine by holding fast to this truth which dwells inside all of us. You know, that's a pretty amazing description of what we're doing here. The decolonization of the heart or mind, a lot of that happens by being able to drop out of our conditioned way of relating to the world. It's a dropping out of the intellectual, conceptual way of being into this deeper level of being with things as they are. One of the, I think, difficulties in practice is that we can't hold on to that. It's like we have glimpses of it, or we might call that a peak experience when truly the the seven factors, or at least in terms of factors of enlightenment, at least the mindfulness, the energy, the concentration, and then that holy equanimity, the unconditional acceptance, are present enough so that we really do get that there isn't anything to cling to. We see so clearly anicca, dukkha, anatta. We see so clearly that when we look at a thought that it is insubstantial. So that we know, there's no way we could cling to it 
or believe it, because in that moment we see it so clearly. When fear arises, we're able to really connect with the experience rather than disconnect. And we can again see the play of thought or body sensation or the actual heart center tightening. And we see again that there just isn't anything substantial in that. There is nothing solid in it. And we see again that so clearly that the body sensations, the thoughts, and all that, what we might call the emotion, isn't solid. It's not referring back to somebody. And that's a peak experience. And we also, it's so good to remember that that peak experience can come when we're sweeping, or when we're in the toilet, or when we're brushing our hair. You know, it's like it doesn't have to happen on a cushion. There's those moments when literally we're perfectly put together. And in those moments, there really isn't any sense of any, anything being inside or outside. But there's one expression we often use for it, which is dropping in. You know, it's a feeling of kind of dropping into the flow of how things are with momentary, momentary concentration, momentary mindfulness. In those times, there isn't any question of whether we're connecting enough or detached enough. It's like we're just dropped in. If we try to explain that in terms of the mind and heart and the movement of the mind, one might say that, again, we're so inside the experience that we're understanding the experience from the inside. We're not outside the experience looking at it from the outside and and analyzing it conceptually from the outside. And it's just important to remember that in those times, if if you do look at them, there is this real balance of receiving the experience, connecting with it, and the non-attachment is coming from understanding it from the inside. We're not trying to figure it out from the outside. So we're so truly inside a thought that we see that it's just passing away, that it's not anything to cling to. So remember, you know, there's often a way in which we, we might think that we can spiritually bypass an experience, <laughs> you know, by not clinging to it, um, but we don't connect to it. And that, you know, that the way we can go out of balance is either in two ways. One is to sort of connect so much without the detachment or non-attachment that we really do drown in the experience. We can't see it clearly. We're really identified with the thoughts about it. And we think we have to do something with it. So, for example, if loneliness kind of appeared and we tried to go into it, connect with it, but we didn't have enough mindfulness or wisdom to understand that it's impermanent, that, that, that there's no self, that there's dukkha, you know, that we don't have enough understanding, we can go into that loneliness and drown in it. We might find ourselves caught up in a fantasy ten minutes later. And, and if you trace it back, it's because maybe we went in too far, we received it, but we didn't have that balance of seeing it clearly. On the other hand, you know, then there can be the movement too far away from the experience. It's like you kind of step back and you don't receive it, so you don't experience it, and you try to bypass it with the wisdom that is actually disconnected. We have this idea that we're meant to be staying in perfect balance all the time, but we're coming in and, ba- in and out of balance continually with the sense of stepping out, looking at the experience, sometimes we really have to do that for a long time. We can't be so connected in because we don't have enough mindfulness and equanimity. And it is good to have more space and not be in it. You know, so, so if you look at your experience for one or two minutes, mostly what's happening is we're going in, we're coming out, we're going in and coming out. That's sort of a lot of what we're doing in practice. And when those two come together, when we, we go in, 
<laughs> but we go through the experience with wisdom rather than disconnection or drowning. That's what we would call, that's what our judging mind calls a good, a good sitting or a good walking or a good eating is when we have that balance of connection and non-attachment. So sometimes um, there are different ways of describing this type of awareness. Sometimes it's called choiceless awareness. Sometimes it's called, you know, letting things be. I think sometimes it's called that things appear and liberate themselves. But it, it's like it doesn't even have to be described as that. It's that um, mystery of, letting, of really letting, it, like, letting life reveal itself. There is a kind of wonder in this. There is a kind of um, joy in the pure exploration of meditation when we do feel that sense that um, the, the motivation for being with what is isn't coming out of striving or trying to get better or trying to do something or fix, but just that sense of the joy of being with the truth that deep delight of being with things as they are, even when they're painful. There are the times when we we let go of control so completely that we see that there's no need to control anything. And it's those times, again, we can talk around this, but it's almost like there's, there's no greed, hatred, and delusion present and so the universe is touching us completely. So we've, rece- we've received the truth of the universe so completely that there's complete understanding. That is awakening, is when there's a complete understanding, but it hasn't come through the conceptual overlay. It comes from just dropping in and letting things be. So sometimes it can be helpful if, if we're um, kind of in a kind of medium place with this where we're sort of wondering, well, what is dropping in or what is being inside an experience? Sometimes it's interesting to ask, you know, say if loneliness appeared, well, what would it feel like to be inside the experience and to really understand it from the inside? Sometimes that can make kind of us go from wanting to disconnect from an experience such as fear or loneliness. You know, there's, there's that tendency to be conditioned to, to disconnect. And often we're trying to convince ourselves that it's real equanimity, but it's fake equanimity. You know, we're, we're pretending that we're okay, that it's there. And that's really a kind of denial or passivity. So re- it's really, it's, it can be very fun to explore something like what we've had the most resistance to when we have this attitude of really questioning, what would it be like to connect with this and not, a, not attach with it and just have that sort of wonder of exploring something that has been so difficult for us. That's a kind of investigation that comes out of pure motivation because we're not trying to control or get rid of anything with our mindfulness practice. I find um, spring in New England a great place to develop this sense of wonder and mystery in practice because it tends to be so changeable. So we can go from that penetrating rain to, you know, the sunlight to a frost, you know, in like 24 hours. And that that sense of really immersing ourselves in nature so that we get a sense of full moon, which is often the metaphor for awakening, you know, but the poet Saigyo that I've quoted a lot this month, you know, reminds us that, that, that there is the new moon in the first quarter, the full moon, the next quarter. You know, that, that we go through those times of peak 
but to remember that then there's a time of black hole, that that nature is continually teaching us that. And often we doubt ourselves, we doubt our practice when we go from the full moon to the new moon, when it's really just a matter, again, of kind of stepping back and then stepping out so we don't get so into the drowning part of it and really accept, oh yeah, there's this kind of profundity of change. And this is how we start trusting our practice, to not take those cycles of full moon, new moon, full moon, new moon, peak experience, black hole, peak experience. You know, so it's to start to see that maybe we don't have to take that so personally, that, that we bring that, our understanding of anatta to that shifting of experience. There's a um, poem by Saigyo that I wanted to read. And um, he wrote this at a time when he was feeling desolate. Maybe none of you have had that experience of feeling desolate, but uh, (laughs) for those of you who have had it, or at at a point in time when I was feeling desolate, I heard the voice of a cricket very close to my pillow. At that turning point, with my head, for the last time, pillowed in sagebrush, I'd have this chirping insect still be what's closest to me. One of the things they say about him in the introduction is how much he uses the Japanese word tomo. It's it's spelled T-O-M-O and it means companion or friend. And in most poems, he's addressing something like a rock or a cricket or a tree or a bird. You know, everything is his companion or friend. And, you know, that was his practice. One of his practices was really working with his loneliness or melancholy or desolateness. Like, instead instead of avoiding that, he really went into it and, and went through it with this understanding of any, anything that he could relate to in nature as, as a very dear friend. So sometimes we hear a lot about anatta or emptiness, you know, and I think that that understanding that in, there is in no thing a trace of that being's having its existence in and of itself alone. But we can hit these places where we feel so alone, not in a place where it's invigorating, but where it really can get dark and heavy. And I find that um, the way that Saigyo, as a Buddhist monk, related to the desolateness is really inspiring because he would go through it and find this place in the anatta as a it's like a place of discovery and a place of play and it's it's a play with you know a kind of free interrelatedness of of phenomena so that the codependent rising had a had a place of of play in his heart rather than <coughs> scary emptiness One of the descriptions of mindfulness as being soft readiness, to me, really embodies that sense of facing dukkha with that sense of play, so that that understanding that anything can happen and that, that there is nothing that can protect us from that except for mindfulness and metta. You know, that, that the protection is continually that sense of are we going to protect ourselves with greed, hatred, and delusion, which is our conditioning and a very deep conditioning, or are we going to protect ourselves with pure interest in the truth, 
pure interest in how things are. And that, that really becomes a love of learning, a love of exploration. Again, over and over in terms of facing the dukkha rather than going into that pretending that everything is okay that our culture tends to be fairly good at. Or I was conditioned very well in it. So understanding the fragility of life or that uncertainty of life um, with, with a kind of total acceptance, not the fake equanimity, but the total acceptance, tends to bring us to that sense of a, there's a quivering aliveness or a shivering, you know, shimmering presence. You know, it's, sometimes it's called the suchness of being. There's a, another poem that I like a lot by a, by a poet that isn't well-known. He's a Chinese poet, Cheng Hao. And this is called A Casual Poem on a Spring Day. The clouds are thin. The wind is light. The sun is nearly overhead, past the flowers, through the willows, down along the stream. People don't see the joy in my heart. They think I'm wasting time or acting like a child. I think that's often something we lose, that sense of the the delight and the play and the joy of exploring the truth. Maybe we'll be accused of being too childlike or wasting time. You know, but as, again, in a, in a very heavy intellectual culture, hopefully people will be willing to move from that to more of the purity of just wonder and to know that we can't know the mystery of things through thinking, but we can know when it's there. And that's an important distinction that we really can know when there's that presence of that. Another way into a a discussion around this kind of freedom, which is that lack of being colonized by the greed, hatred, and delusion, Um, part of the verses on the faith mind from the third Chinese Zen patriarch, patriarch, it's said in that, Um, in those verses, to set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. And I think that we have less and less joy when we really are considering, you know, being with a breath in the hall or being with, you know, a moment in the hall more valuable than being with sweeping. There is a sense that we have set up this disease in the mind around preference. And I think that the more one, one becomes sensitized to this, the more interesting it can be. And I'll give you an example. Just, I mean, there's endless examples of this. The other day I went to this swamp that is near where I'm staying here. And it's a place that I know really well. And often if there's a little being that's going to come swimming along, it will either be a beaver or an otter. And... I can really lose that sense of discovery or joy if I get caught in that I know what this is going to be or that, you know, it's either going to be these two. And I was really tired this day, and I was sitting there, and this thing started swimming kind of far out along. And I was staring at it, and I really wanted to know. You know, I was trying to peg it that, it okay, it's a beaver and otter, it's, you know, and I was kind of wanting it to be an otter. And then it would mean... Symbolically, blah blah blah. Who knows? I was doing this whole thing. <laughs> be an otter, be an otter. You know, so that'll be a good omen. You know, I was doing this whole thing, and and then it started. It's like, whoa! It really didn't look like either. But my mind would not face that it was what I thought it was, which was a muskrat. 
<laughs> and I didn't think a muskrat was a good omen. You know, like I had this whole idea that a muskrat, oh, you know, I don't want to see a muskrat. So like this thing is swimming along and it's really short-bodied. It's clearly not an otter or a beaver. But I spent five minutes convincing myself that it wasn't a muskrat. I mean, what is that? I mean, what is that, you know, it's so stupid. <laughs> it's like, and I was really into it, and it, it started to get closer, and it wasn't acting like a beaver or, or an otter. It was really acting like a rat, you know. And so it, it, there was a log that was close to where I was, and it got up on the log, and it was going back and forth. And it's like, whoa, that doesn't look like a beaver or an otter. And, it, and then it started getting really close. And I have the, all these ideas that rats should only get muskrats or anything in that category should only get so close to me. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, and then it's really not acting like a beaver or an otter. It gets closer and closer and closer, and I'm like, oh. you know, it's just so hard to be open to this being that I have so much conditioning around. And it's, it's amazing, but it took me probably 15 minutes before I was like, no, this is this is an okay being, you know. I, I just like unbelievable that I can have that kind of arrogance and idea that, you know, this disease of the mind of picking and choosing. And it was so cute, you know, when I finally got over this thing that I, you know, I wanted it to be this other thing, and I could just let it be the way it was. It was so delightful. I mean, in some ways, when we overcome something like that. It's even more fun. You know, it was a delightful being. It was so interesting to be with. And I think the examples of this are limitless, but I could tell you another one that's quite amusing. You know, because again, that whole mouse rodent thing, I have the conditioning that they shouldn't be close, too close, or, you know, that they should be out there, or whatever it is, or they're not, you know, it's like, okay, there's an eagle, wow, what does that mean? But, you know, a rat doesn't always feel like you're making this interpretation, you know, that's exciting, right? And in Burma, where I stay is, is this great place where, you know, there's a door into this bathroom. But when they made the bathrooms there, they didn't really think out the engineering the way a Westerner would. And they have the sink. They, it was so sweet because they tried so hard to do it the way they thought we wanted it, which they made these sinks and they made a cement floor. And um, so you, wa- you brush your teeth and then the water goes down this pipe and it goes by on your feet. Like it just, it goes down and then it like travels across and there's a hole that it's supposed to go out, you know, but then the hole kind of builds up with sand and there's always that feeling of like, whoa, who, who did this? Like, it's so like not how we do things here, but it's great because it's, it's so not like how we do things. So this day I walked in and <laughs> there was this mouse. Like, I had come and nobody had been in there for a while. And this mouse, like, had been living in there. And when I would come, it would run into this hole. And all that was left was its little behind and the tail. And the mouse thought I couldn't see it. <laughs> and it was so adorable like day after day I would be, have that feeling like oh no a mouse and then it would be it would just be quivering there its little butt and the tail like thinking that I couldn't see it and it just kept softening my heart and softening my heart and softening my heart you know it's just like it was just as afraid we're all so afraid So I find again and again that we only find courage if we allow ourselves to feel afraid. And for me, given the um, kind of, I think it's kind of 10 generations of mental illness around anxiety in my family, it's like a chain that goes down through the women in in my um, genetics. Um, So my mother's mother never left her bedroom. You know, and they have a word for it now, agoraphobic. But she literally, in my mother's lifetime, never left the bedroom and died around 40. And then my mom 
had the same stuff, and, and I think she tried alcohol as a way to sort of overcome the fear, but it backfired on her. So, so it's interesting because the thing that I felt that I needed most, which was just this ability to say, I'm afraid, it's okay, it's taken 20 to 30 years of mindfulness practice to be able to go, oh, it's okay to be afraid. Because the resistance and the conditioning is so much not to face it. And we all have this somewhere. We might not have it with anxiety, but we all have a karmic knot. And it, it's really important to look at the mindfulness practice and see that we, we might start with learning, learning to be mindful of the breath, learning to be mindful with sound, learning to be mindful of the body, learning to be mindful of resistance, learning to be mindful of, of loneliness. But there tends to be often one or two major things that I call karmic knot because it just feels like the conditioning, meaning that we learned that whatever this experience was, was going to kill us if we really felt it. You know, so we've already, we've already gone through you know, really getting getting obliterated by that experience, so we're kind of afraid of it. So for me, one of those is fear. And it does run in my family. And I was with my um, my great niece and great nephew the last few days. I went went to visit, and my nephew, who's nine, was just about to have to do one of those um, big karate tests to get I forget which stripe or, you know, black belt brown. I forget what it was, but it was a big deal. It was a really big deal. And I call him, his name is Owen, but I call him Saint Owen because his sister, Brenna, who I've described, is really a trial. I mean, he just, he has to be so good and so patient. It's, it's amazing to watch how good he is with her. And it's just like, so whenever he doesn't act like that, it's kind of like, whoa, what's with him? But it's really that he's being like a normal kid, but he just is so amazingly good with her. And we were playing Monopoly, and everything was going fine. And then, you know, he started acting towards her like she usually acts toward him. And it was amazing. I mean, I'm like, whoa, what's up? You know, and he was just just cutting her to shreds verbally and saying she was an idiot and stupid and... And she was kind of like, you know, and she just fights back. And it was just like a nice, pleasant game of Monopoly. It was awful. And finally, it was so bad. And I'm like, what is wrong, Owen? And he just started sobbing. I mean, just huge sobs. Just like it just was exploding out of him. And he's like, I'm afraid I'm not going to do well on this test. And it was just like, he was so afraid. And it's like it was not, it's like that's the conditioning in my family, that you let it build and build and build because it's not okay to feel it. And so when you finally feel it, it's so big. And it took about 20 minutes to kind of help them, like, get, okay, it's okay if you don't do this perfectly. But it really isn't okay if he doesn't do it perfectly. It's like, it's a really hard one for him to go through. And when we often, we can see in a day of practice, or maybe over three days, but there's something that will throw us off, and we can kind of get really grouchy, or we'll start hating everybody, if you're honest, or if you're that type. Um, You know, whatever it is, but it's like, what is wrong? You know, the whole world is colored by this, like, blah. And finally, it's often something like, oh, I'm afraid. So we um, ended up being at karate for a long time because um, his younger sister decided to take karate. Brenda decided to take karate. And it's really funny because this was her older brother's thing. It was like his thing. And he was proud of it. And I think he really wanted it not not to have to share it with her. But he was the one who suggested that she take it. But he didn't think she'd say yes. So he was sort of teasing her, and she's six, and you know she said yes. <laughs> and it's really, it's just funny somehow. It's just funny to watch 
her um, start to get into it. But both of them hassle me while, you know, if they're the one that is waiting for the other one for the class. They wanted to go to this pet store, which was just kind of down um, at the end of this mall. And uh, I don't really like pet stores. You know, it's just like it's not my thing anyway. So it's kind of like, oh, please don't make me go to the pet store. I want to watch this. And anyway, I ended up going to the pet store with both of them because, of course, you can't go to the pet store once if you don't go both times. Um, and so some of you know that I one of my litmus tests for fear is snakes. You know, so the, the long version of the story is that my mom and my older sister, and it must again run in generations, but just this off-the-top, I guess you'd call it an extreme phobia around snakes. And I actually remember when I was a kid trying not to, not to catch it. Like, I remember I'd go out when I was three or four and play with garter snakes and just, like, I'm not afraid. I'm not, Look, I'm not afraid. And, you know, and then it just started seeping in, you know, it's like it was, it's so intense that um, you can't even mention the word. And, you know, if one comes on the television, there's hysteria. Like, it's, it's really strong. I'm not exaggerating this. In fact, with my sister, one time she came to visit me, and I, I have the sand play room that I've done sand play with people, and um, there's a fake snake in it, and she wouldn't come in my house until I put it outside and hit it. You know, she actually can't even handle, in a room with the door closed, a fake snake. You know, this is serious business here. So, okay, so over years I kind of developed this myself, but not to that extreme. And I took a job when I worked, actually I I, I was um, working at this Audubon sanctuary outside of Springfield, Massachusetts. And they had um, a school you know, bus come and drop off a, a school load of kids, and I would show them the raccoon. And This was all supposed to be native New England stuff. I don't know how this boa constrictor got into this business. You know, that's how I got into it, was I was going to show them owls and, you know, skunks and chipmunks. And, you know, and then suddenly they added, we went in this room, and there's this huge cage, you know, with... And her name was Rosie Boa. <laughs> and my job was to, like, bring the kids in there and talk about Rosie, take her out of the cage, and give her, you know, pass her around. And really, I just, like, this is one of the funniest experiences of my life because I completely forced myself to this. Talk about fake equanimity. I mean, I should have quit, you know. I mean, this was, this was absurd, but this was my, this is my kamikaze, macho conditioning, like, you know, you know, suck it up, Michelle, and just do it. What's the problem? You know, just bulldoze through. So, you know, it was just humiliating. I used to go to work early, which if you know me, that's unthinkable. You know, it's just like to show up early. And I'd go in and I'd talk to Rosie and I'd, I'd apologize for being the type I was and try to develop a relationship. And, and then the kids would come in and I'd just, I, would, I would dissociate. Now I know what that is. I would completely leave my body. And I'd look for a kid that like, really looked like they liked snakes. And I would literally take the boa constrictor all in one movement and throw it at the kid. Like I, I, it was terrible. I would be like, OK, guys, you know, wham. And the kid would be like, whoa. And it's everybody would be like, whoa. And the kids who were afraid would sort of run to one side of the room because they didn't want, you know, that sort of thing. And it was just, oh, and I did this for a whole year. I would just throw the boa constrictor, and at the end I would say, okay, so-and-so, could you just put put it in the cage? I wouldn't even touch it again and, you know, slam, I put the top on it. You know, it would just be like, oh, just torture. And it would be, I didn't learn a thing. (laughs) <laughs> no, I didn't. I just, all I learned was more aversion. And I did this in my practice for years with body pain and mental pain that I had these karmic knots with. It's like I would just hold my nose, dive in, and do that same kamikaze macho thing and just push and push and push until I would terrify myself. And you know, I'm really grateful to Sayadaw Upandita because he taught me not to do that 
He taught me that there's such a thing as an anchor, and the anchor is meant to be neutral. And there is this option that instead of just having to be with something, which was, was my training, go through it and just keep pushing it until you've got it. So my willpower, I was using my willpower. I have very strong willpower, and I kept feeling defeated. And I kept feeling defeated, and I kept feeling defeated. And lo and behold, this is, this is the place where I really learned that moving to something neutral isn't being a wimp and isn't avoiding, but it's actually skillful when we don't have the mindfulness, energy, equanimity, when we can't see it clearly, when we're caught. Anyway, to make a long story short, in the pet store, (laughs) you wouldn't believe the snake. I mean, it's just... It is unfathomably the hugest, biggest snake I have ever seen in my life. It's from Burma. And it's just like, and they knew, you know, these kids knew, like, this thing was in there. And they're like, <laughs> and I don't, you know, and they, like, then we, we look at this ferret, which was kind of interesting. And we looked at, you know, the mice and rats and this and that and the fish. And then, and then they grabbed my hand because they're scared too. And we go over. And it was just like, part of me just, wanted to pass out this thing was so big but then you know it was like I'm like okay (laughs) I'm going to stay here it's in the cage I'm going to look at it and then I just started looking at the color and it was so beautiful it was just like the yellow it's yellow and white I've never seen a snake like this and then it was so big and the cage was so small and it was so painful you know, to see this exquisitely beautiful being stuck in such a small area, you know, and it, the whole, the whole, its whole life is trying to get out of there. You know, it was, and then, then there's that feeling of compassion, again, for us all. You know, we all have our prisons, you know, and, and for us as humans, if we're not in some kind of hard situation like that, which a lot of us humans are, then we're in that prison cell of greed, hatred, and delusion. And it's really being able to get the sense that this practice is one of stretching and stretching and stretching in terms of what experiences can become more and more acceptable for us. But not through willpower. It's through metta. It's through compassion, it's through mindfulness, it's this ability to really have the skillful means and to know I have the, I have, it's not I have, but there's enough mindfulness, energy, equanimity to really explore and go into, to connect. And then there are other times when that is unwise and it's time to like have a cup of tea, go outside, get some space. You know, and both of them are skillful. And it's really up to us to determine when it's time to stretch and when it's time. Um, I mean, I, I think there are different ways we can use a word for this because I think sometimes when we hear the word or words backing off, again, it's implying some kind of um, wimpy <laughs> uh, defeat. But it, it has nothing to do with defeat. It has to do with skillful means and really seeing, am I reinforcing aversion here? And really, that was the, one of probably the most important places in my practice when I started to see that. Am I reinforcing aversion here? Or am I really working with it clearly here? The Dalai Lama said from the book Ethics for a New Millennium, it is also worth remembering that the time of greatest gain in terms of wisdom and inner strength is often that of greatest difficulty. With the right approach, and here we see once more the supreme importance of developing a positive attitude the experience of suffering can open our eyes to reality. For example, my own experience of life as a refugee 
has helped me to realize that the endless protocol, which was such an important part of my life in Tibet, was quite unnecessary. We also find that our confidence and self-reliance can grow and our courage becomes strengthened as a result of suffering. Within our own refugee community, for example, among the survivors of our early years in exile are a number who, though they suffered terribly, are among the strongest spiritually and the most cheerfully carefree individuals I have the privilege to know. Conversely, we find that in the face of even relatively slight adversity, some people who have everything are inclined to lose hope and become despondent. There is a natural tendency for wealth to spoil us. The result is that we find it progressively more difficult to bear easily the problems everyone must encounter from time to time. And I bring that in mainly to sort of tie in that sense of this Sayadaw, you know, where, where he really has that sense of being able to play that edge of not having too much, but just, just to receive just enough from the universe. And that that's really peace and happiness and gives us that sense of strength and resiliency rather than to get too comfortable. My um, ex-mother-in-law, who, who was very good to me and is good to me, um, but she's really got heavy-duty dementia, um, is turned 94 this year. And I try to visit her. Um, I don't ever feel like I visit her enough. And she's a person who tends to bring a very wonderful attitude to I think the incredible difficulties of aging, and I I think losing your mind, from my point of view, especially having spent most of my life dedicated to mindfulness, losing the mind is is scary. Certainly it it doesn't look um, like a piece of cake. And she has been a great teacher for me because she's so gracious about it. And one of the things she loved to do was read. And she can't read anymore because she can't retain it enough to know what's happening. But she could still read the newspaper. And it's kind of like it was her last stronghold in terms of, I think, kind of having some sort of normal life. And it it was like interesting to watch her see that she couldn't even quite retain a headline. You know, it's like she, she has the paper there, but she really can't even manage that anymore. Yet she keeps replacing what she had before with something else. She, she really is a gracious being. Uh, and, and again, that's what, te- that's what I've learned a lot from, is that she moved from the book to the newspaper. She doesn't complain about it. And partly what I find so amazing about her is her gratitude. It's like she, she's so grateful that she's still at home. And I do think that's something to be grateful for. But a lot of people would not be expressing that, given that her life has whittled down to this room. She doesn't leave the room at all. It's, you know, it's like you lose everything, in a way. And it, it's difficult. Um, and she doesn't get visited enough, you know. It's like... She, it's hard to be an old person, you know. And So I'll come in and she said, you know... I'm so lucky to be a little old lady and not in a nursing home. I'm just so lucky. And then I said, well, what are you up to? And, and she has, you know, the, the chair, the person who's been taking care of her has a chair, so she's looking out the window. And her life has become looking at the horizon. And that's what she does all day. She looks at the horizon. She's lucky she gets to look out at the ocean. And she's just like, every once in a while she's like, I'm so glad I planted that hedge. You know, like there's this napaka hedge, which is um, a native species that grows right there on the edge of the ocean, and, and it it's like frames the horizon. And she looks at the horizon, and I said, "Well, what do you, 
like, what do you do when you're looking at the horizon? She's like, well, a couple times a day, I notice a change in the horizon. And I said, well, what's that? And she said, well, sometimes, every once in a while, a boat comes by. And that, like, that's it. That's her life. And it's so powerful for me to like go in there. And she's like so quiet and so peaceful. And she's learned to really get all she needs from the horizon. When you look at how much entertainment we still need, <laughs> you know, we have that sense that we're lucky we can get from one walking spot to another without entertaining ourselves, right? You know, it's like that sense that, you know, that's such a big deal that to be able to really just be that with what is, you know, to be with the present moment and not need to embellish it in the ways that we tend to need um, to make ourselves feel better. So wisdom is the lowering of expectation. And what defeats us is our ideas about what we think freedom is rather than what it really is. And I think we have to look at what, what that idea is that defeats us is really our impatience with resistance. It's our impatience with how quickly we think we're so-called progressing in the practice. So what I would really encourage you to um, try to hold that paradox of spiritual urgency and timelessness with some kind of graciousness, as I've described Steve's mom, it's like um, we can have a sense of pure exploration even with that, that, that there, there's that sense that you never know what's going to happen, we don't know when death will come, and there, there is that sense of urgency to decolonize the mind, to get out of prison. And at the same time, if we're motivated in a way that's coming out of trying to get, trying to rescue, trying to fix, you know, it's like we don't have a relationship, a true relationship of wisdom and compassion with our experience. So that backfires, and it'll backfire until that, that deep delight in the pure exploration comes back. And when you kind of touch into that with a sense of timelessness. You know, that can be how we orient back and forth between that paradox of, of urgency and timelessness. So when we're in the timelessness place, we have all the time in the world. Really, it's what's so wonderful about dropping into that space. It's just like, it's like all sense of hurrying disappears because you really get that we have all the time in the world. And then that's, that doesn't stay permanent. Then there's that sense of swinging to the other side, of really remembering not to get complacent when we're not in that timeless place, and to get that sense of um, you know, that the world's on fire. The greed, hatred, and delusion are such a fire. And it's not easy for us humans to, to hold that paradox, but I, I feel that as we stay in the, in the fire of that paradox, it's really how we mature the wisdom and mature the wisdom and mature the wisdom until we really are free from suffering. I wanted to end with a poem that I read when I was maybe in 7th or 8th grade that I really inspired me. It's called 40 Poems of the River Wang by Pei Ti. 
The sun sets. The wind rises among the pines. Returning home, there is a little dew upon the grass. The reflection of the clouds falls into the tracks of my shoes. The blue of the mountains touches my clothes. The reflection of the clouds falls into the tracks of my shoes. The blue of the mountains touches my clothes. Let's sit for a minute. May we be free from suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.